Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Human Behavior Show podcast. Um, we're getting through these pretty quick. Um, and I love how we've been focusing on so many different topics, um, but always centered around how humans behave. Today's show will be on preventive medicine, which is an area which is close to what I'm interested in. As you all know, I am board certified in lifestyle medicine, which includes nutrition, exercise, sleep, stress management, and behavior change. And it's an area I'm really interested in. How can we help prevent disease? What healthy habits can we adopt to live a healthier, more optimal life? So that is something that um, I've been focusing on and I've been trying to um, really help um, progress the field. It's a new certification and I've really wanted to kind of um, have guests who specialize in this field and really interview them. So one of my guests who we have today will be Professor Kotha. She is a preventive medicine physician. She's a public health professor. She's worked with a lot of interesting companies all around the world in helping them design programs for preventive medicine, be it quitting smoking, obesity, of genuine ones, and, she, and she's involved with so many interesting projects, including Vitality, she's been involved in the past, um, she's got some cool ones coming up, um, and we're both really looking at the future of personalized tech-driven medicine, which we really think is the future of health. Um, so that's what um, today's episode will be about. Um, she's going to be coming on in just a second, and for all of you, this is available on Spotify and as well on Apple Podcasts. So it's going to be a really good episode. Do share, do um, tell people about it. Love your feedback. If you've got any suggestions for guests, love to hear them. We'll try and sort them out as well. Um, so you're probably wondering, what is preventative medicine? So preventive medicine is the art of helping people adopt behaviors and downstream look at their health rather than when it goes wrong when they already have a diagnosis. Um, hello, and we have her here now. So she'll be joining, and yeah, someone I really look up to, so I think it's going to be a super episode. So first of all, welcome, Professor Kota. Welcome to the Human Behavior Show. So happy to have you here. I was just doing a bit of an intro about you, how we met, and also about what preventive medicine is. So firstly, welcome, and please tell everyone um, what you do, what you're interested in, and what is preventive medicine. And you could just tap to unmute. <laughs> it's your first time on Calling App, guys. We're doing this live from Calling App, a superb app um, that I use to record my podcast, The Human Behavior Show. Hi, Sohaib. I uh, hope you can hear me okay. Thanks for the invite uh, onto the show and uh, great to be here. Uh, so I'm uh, Kotha Hadja. I'm, I'm a public health doctor. And I trained first in general medicine or internal medicine and then um, moved to public health. And uh, maybe I can share a little bit about why. So uh, in general medicine, we used to see people with heart disease, um, asthma, bronchitis. And I, I would see the same people every few weeks, every few months. And actually, there was nothing being done in their home lives or outside of the hospital uh, to uh, improve their prognosis and I really wanted to start working a bit more upstream and so uh, moved into public health to to really work on prevention and preventative medicine and so really there are different um, levels of prevention I would say 
And so what for the last few decades, really what we've been working on in prevention is trying to um, uh, is, is primary prevention. So trying to work on people's lifestyle risk factors so that they don't cause uh, the disease endpoints. So disease endpoints like um, heart attacks or strokes um, or even cancer and the um, upstream risk factors for those. And uh, it's amazing how um, how much of these disease endpoints are attributable to the same risk factors. So if we talk about heart disease, um, up to 85 or 90 percent of all heart attacks could have been prevented through diet, physical activity, um, handling stress and uh, smoking, etc. And for cancer, the number is around 45%. So it's a large proportion of all diseases that we can prevent through these risk factors. And so uh, my work is really looking at um, how we set up programs to get people to reduce their lifestyle risk factor burden and therefore prevent chronic disease and disease endpoints in the first place. But then also a little bit on how we design um, health services to treat people once they do have chronic disease. But I'm moving more and more into the pure prevention. And um, so we talk about upstream and downstream models, upstream being the um, the risk, the lifestyle risk factors. And um, we talk about primary prevention and secondary prevention. So primary prevention is where we treat and, and better manage things like um, high blood glucose and high blood pressure to stop those developing into, say, heart attacks or strokes. And uh, secondary prevention is once people already have those disease endpoints, heart attacks and strokes, it's preventing them uh, developing further episodes. And so now... Um, uh, there's a lot of work or the, the trends really are um, moving away from the secondary prevention, moving towards primary prevention, but, but moving even further upstream uh, from primary prevention. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about that together. Um, there's been uh, partly due to lockdown and COVID and hospital services being reduced. There has been a tremendous shift in away from um, clinic care to direct consumer prevention. And that has been helped uh, hugely by um, technology um, such as, um, well, the availability of smartphones for people, a lot of apps that have, have uh, been um, become available for prevention, um, but also um, more uh, sophisticated technology like VR, AR, we're going into the metaverse now, and all of these will play a role in um, prevention in healthcare. And again, let's let's uh, maybe come on and talk about that a little bit more. Another um, um, factor that has contributed to this really has been COVID itself. And so previously, people would have. Um, so when, when we talk about risk factors and risk factor burden, it's really a lifetime risk. So you accumulate the risk factor burden throughout your life from in, in utero throughout the rest of your life. So even um, your lifestyle as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult. But typically before people would get to age 55, 60, 70, before they'd start to see the disease endpoints that resulted from that lifetime of less than ideal um, 
um, uh, risk factor uh, and, and lifestyle behaviors. But with COVID, we saw actually that people who were the, the a majority of people who were getting very unwell and unfortunately dying from COVID did have a very high um, chronic disease and risk factor burden. And things like obesity, diabetes, heart disease were heavily associated with poor outcomes in COVID. And these were at much younger ages. So for people in their 30s, 40s, 50s. And so I think it really did drive home the importance of um, being healthy throughout your life and at an early age. Um, so that's the, to just give some context and we can go into more details in each of these areas. Yeah, thank you so much, Professor Kothar. That's been really interesting um, in what you've been involved with as well. And um, I mean, we've talked a lot about how health is changing and I remember having a lot of conversations with you and we've done a lot of clubhouse sessions um, about various topics. And I know you're looking at a lot of precision medicine now as well. Um, I did want to kind of help the readers kind of or listeners understand uh, where we're kind of coming from. I mean, Kothar and I have done a lot of work in this space. We've hosted people like Tim Spector uh, from London, uh, Will Ahmed from Whoop, um, a lot of very interesting uh, pioneering almost people in tech. And um, obviously, Professor Koth has a lot of experience working across the world, Abu Dhabi, etc. And, you know, speaking at so many different conferences and kind of a whole wealth of experience. And then it really validated my decision making when I saw this as upcoming space. And then you have someone, you know, with an MD, PhD, <laughs> all these qualifications also looking at it. Because we know in the spaces you often say to me as well, there's a lot of woo-woo as well, right? And um, yeah. You always bring the evidence. You're an expert at reading papers. I mean, your PhD proves that. You've, you've written papers yourself. Um, so before I go into kind of asking you about some of the studies you've done personally about topics like quitting smoking, etc., um, I just want to mention, so Gucci actually partnered with Aura Ring this week. And I found that pretty exciting yes, because... I, I saw that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it's interesting how that's changed so much. I remember five to seven years ago, I was sat in London and I was wearing this ring and my friends were like, are you engaged? I was like, no, this is sleep tracker. People found it weird wearing a, a ring that tracks your sleep. And just seeing how in five years from 2017, that change has happened that now all these celebrities are wearing aura rings and it's become so mainstream. That's how, I mean, Apple wanted to be a health company. So I think every company will eventually have something to do with health. As we look at lifestyle medicine, we know, all components. I mean, I'm doing in startup relationships. Everything has an impact on your health. And I find that very interesting when you look at preventive medicine and you look at, you know, preventing chronic disease, which can be mental health as well, which is often forgotten. So I found that I find that super, super important. So I want to take your take on kind of where do you think, you know, you mentioned consumer health is as well. And then please tell us about some of the studies you've done as well. I know you've worked with Vitality as well and all this host of experience you have. Uh, yeah, completely with you there, Sohabe. So one of the other areas that you, you've touched on is that um, we've been tackling, as clinicians, we ta tend to tackle things in silos. So we either tackle um, people with anxiety and depression or people um, who need help with their diets or people who are not exercising. But actually everything is very interlinked skin health, diet, physical activity, smoking, uh, mood. Um, these are all interrelated. Uh, one thing causes another. And quite often they have the same um, driving factor or motivating force behind them. And actually, I, I mentioned that um, 
Um, so I've been thinking a lot about how far upstream uh, we need to go. And so if we look at the last few decades, we haven't really made a huge amount of progress. We as a healthcare community haven't made a huge amount of progress with getting people healthier in their lifestyle behaviours. And um, uh, part of that is because we're not really giving them the tools to change. So the environments that we live in are becoming less and less conducive to healthy behaviours. So the food availability of food, uh, the availability to um, uh, have active transport, for example, to walk to work or to walk to the shops or cycle to places. So all of that has an impact. Um, so I've been thinking quite a lot about how about moving further upstream. So what are the real motivating factors behind all of these lifestyle um, behaviours? So um, if we take any one individual, what really are the reasons why they're not um, eating um, a healthy diet and, and exercising. I think almost everyone knows now what a healthy diet looks like. Everyone knows that we're supposed to be exercising for half an hour a day. So, so why are we not doing that? And um, I think quite often we we have ignored um, the further upstream psychological and personality issues and maybe um, other drivers um, that really. Um, stop people from uh, having an optimal lifestyle and some of those are not modifiable so if we if you look at somebody's finances that as clinicians we can't do anything about that but there are other aspects that we can either um, change or, or help the patients change or actually uh, design our offerings and programs accordingly so I'll just give a few examples maybe, and this is still very much, um, there isn't a huge amount of evidence for this, and this is very much an emerging science, and a lot of these are my own ideas and thoughts. So if we take the big five personality traits, I know you've, you you uh, work on these quite a lot, so hey, with some of your other work, and um, uh, there are studies now coming out that show these are quite heavily linked with um, our lifestyle behaviours and how we would respond to lifestyle interventions. So when we in public health, when we talk about um, putting in services for prevention, these are very generic. So take exercise. We tell everyone to do 150 minutes of exercise a week, uh, regardless of their physical um, activity levels to begin with, their size, their weight, their environment. But actually, it's a very personal um, thing. And um, not everybody, some people need more than 150 minutes. For example, if they want to lose weight, they need um, 300 minutes of exercise and different types of exercise rather than just cardio. And so we're not really taking that into account. We're not taking personality traits into account, which um in several ways do impact um our relationship with our lifestyles um so we have this this aspect of uh, called time discounting or risk aversion so your likelihood of taking um short term gain over long term gain so all short term pleasures over long term gain and we see that with um, diets, for example, smoking. People know smoking is bad for you. They still smoke because they get the short-term pleasure and they they prioritise that over the long-term harm from smoking. So personality traits is one area that I think we really need to factor in. Another is um, 
people's health literacy, for example, not everybody starts at the same place. So, so Habe, you yourself, I know you're you're very heavily into the quantified self, and so um, somebody targeting you with an app or the aura ring or or anything like that um, is at a very different starting point than um, if they um, are targeting somebody who's uh, buying their first um, piece of health technology, for example. And so that needs to be taken into account. And then there are many other personal and psychological um, issues, for example, our ability to self-regulate. And um, there are many areas like this that we have up till now largely ignored. And I really think it's time now to start super personalizing uh, what we offer in terms of lifestyle. And we, we talk a lot about personalized medicine, but actually it's not really personalized at all. Personalized medicine up till now has mostly involved just looking at people's genotype, which actually in reality offers um, relatively small amounts of additional information, whereas actually what we should be personalizing is uh, prevention and medicine on is a very is much more of a holistic view of who that person is what their personality is what the motivating factors are um, what their environment looks like um etc etc so yeah it's an emerging field and i'm really excited actually about this field of precision prevention and i think there will be a huge amount of potential with the type of work that we do to deliver on uh, precision prevention and um you asked um, about studies that I've been involved in. Um, so I think maybe the most relevant ones are the behavioral, um, the other ones that really looked at the behavioral science and how that can be um, utilized to change uh, lifestyle behaviors. Uh, so work I did with the company Vitality, really looking at um, how to get people to exercise more. And there were several um, techniques um, utilizing behavioral science, um, for example, looking at um, incentives. So people favor um, near term or short term uh, incentives rather than something that they would get at the end of the year or at the end of the month. So there was a scheme looking at um, verified exercise. So people swiping into a gym, registering for a park run or um uh, monitoring how many steps they're taking from their wearable. And once they get to a certain level at the end of the week, um, they would get a, a free coffee, a vouch for a free coffee or a free cinema ticket. And actually that did work to get people to exercise that little bit more towards the end of the week to get their reward. And some of it because it's nice to be rewarded, but some of it is more of a psychological um, factor. So th that's the goal that they were wanted to reach by the end of that week. And it came with a little bonus of, of an incentive. And actually, that worked very well. So when we actually published a study on this and um, um, showed that, I don't know if it, there's an ability to link what links, though, Hope, I can send you some of the links for the articles. Um, it showed that for people who are least active, um, it increased their um, level of exercise, number of steps, for example, by 400%. And it wasn't a novelty factor. Quite often with um, technology, there's a novelty factor and people do this for a few months and then they stop. But actually, we followed people up for two years. And because these were short-term rewards, they would exercise and continue exercising every week up to two years. There was no drop-off after two years. 
There was a, another study looking um, for the same cohort, actually, uh, but looking at um, dis the impact of disincentives. So on top of the incentives, people were offered a um, an Apple Watch, which was heavily subsidized. And if they met the weekly and monthly exercise goals, again, verified number of steps or gym visits, um, they would um, uh, keep the watch uh, with the current uh, payment model. But if they were not exercising, stopped exercising, or didn't reach those thresholds, then they'd go back to the, the regular payment plan. And so there was a disincentive there. They would have to start paying for that watch if they stopped um, exercising. And again, that had an additive impact on top of the incentives. And um, uh, follow-up for, I believe, four years showed that people were still active and still um, utilising. And there wasn't a um, – there was a small drop-off, but certainly no um, – we didn't see the drop-off that we would see for a regular piece of, um, say, a wearable, an, a ring or a, a smartwatch uh, without any of the behavioural science behind it. So I think that's it, – it's nice when we can do real-world science like this and show – um, how we can um, put in an impact. Yeah, I find that super interesting. Not that any... like super, super interesting. And, yeah. Uh, the field of behavioral economics is just, um, you know, expanding. And I first came across it when I was at Imperial at business school about um, seven years ago. And I've been interested in behavior ever since. And it's so cool that you're actually looking at that, what motivates people, personality types. And I mean, the big five traits, I've only actually become familiar with it over the last year as I do my startup, Amelie, and we're looking at relationship compatibility and big five traits. But that can be applied to a lot of how we behave, how we're likely to adopt behavior. I mean, the traits, conscientiousness, agreeableness, neuroticism, they're very interesting how they define our actions and, and what kind of content we might engage with or might not engage with and different approaches. So that's super interesting for me. And that study you just described um, is, is really interesting, incentivizing people. And then you can also use de-incentivizing people, you know, so it's reward or punishment, what it comes down to, to socially condition people for certain actions. And we see that in in, in marketing a lot, right? Um, shopping, sales, things like that. We're applying that type of um, stuff ethically and health helps people be healthier. Um so that's really interesting. And I know you work with Sophie as well. And she's, your, she's your behavioral scientist, part of your team, right? Yeah. So, so the work I described was uh, with Vitality. Um, so the work we're doing with Sophie is more specifically on um, uh, getting people to shift their diet um, using a range of behavioral interventions. And so we've looked at, uh, we've scoured all the literature to see what works and what uh, doesn't work in terms of shifting behavior and um, Sophie's published a really lovely uh, playbook on how to shift diets to be more sustainable. Another couple of areas we're looking at together is um, so sustainability and diets that are, have less impact on the environment are becoming more popular and um, there was quite a lot of emphasis on that after the the recent um, COP meeting, the uh, UN climate meeting in Glasgow in the UK. And um, we're interested in looking at the overlap between diets for the health and sustainability um, impact. And the overlap is very significant and it's, it's almost an entire overlap. And so um, we're looking at how to design messaging 
um, and how to put out, uh, for example, labels that optimize on the two because um, some emerging studies show that if you put too much information on the label, then it's counterproductive. And if the label is too negative, then it's counterproductive. So, for example, if there's a piece of food, uh, uh, food and on there it tells you that um, this has used up X amount of CO2, that's not necessarily what people want to see um, on um, a food label because it, it, it seems quite uh, detached from the reason that they were buying that food in the first place. Whereas if you have maybe a, a traffic light label that has for both health and for climate, either a green, amber or red, then that's more, it's easier to uh, for the consumer to make a decision on that. Another area that um, we're looking at is on the concept of um, substitution versus omission. So in public health, we again, the, the conventional model is to get people to stop uh, doing any behaviours that are not desirable. So stop smoking, stop eating meat, stop having sugar. But actually, when we look back um, historically, the uh, rapid changes in behavior uh, we have seen are from substitutions, getting people or offering people substitutes rather than um, asking them to quit cold turkey. And so for meat, for example, there's there's a um, big boost now in um, plant-based meats or meat alternatives. And now we're seeing um, lab-cultured meat or lab-made meat and um, uh, proteins derived, um, aquatic proteins and proteins derived from insects. And so that's that's seen as substitution um, rather than emission. And so we're really te trying to test out this concept of which is more desirable, which is, is likely to lead to a greater degree of change. And you can apply that to for example, uh, tobacco, people trying to quit smoking. Do you ask them to quit smoking cold turkey or do you offer them nicotine replacements like gums, vapes, um, NRT patches? Um, and um, similarly for diet, so sugar, for example, do you get people to stop having sugary drinks completely and have water or is it better to offer them a, a the same drink with um, stevia or a um, a sweetener, natural sweetener? So really that whole concept we're looking at, um, because again, uh, it, this is real world science and people, um, the large, um, food companies, for example, they're not, they're not going to go away. Those products will always be here. So how do we optimize people's engagement with those? I'll stop there. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? So, hey, I find that really interesting. Yeah. I think that's really interesting how that the messaging and substitutes make a difference how people perceive things how certain things can be very overwhelming and i would think of it as why aging is very popular when you put anti-aging on something people are way like more likely to um, engage with that product or whatever rather than if you put this prevents heart disease right people aren't as interested because i think we don't see uh, disease until we have it as a problem we see it oh, happen to someone else mm -hmm. but with aging the aesthetics involved, everything else that's involved, slowing down, memory, whatever, is a lot more attractive to people and people are quick to be like, oh, we don't want to age. This arbitrary thing in their mind of aging. So it's interesting how little things like that and tweaks make a difference and how behavior becomes so, you know, behavioral science becomes so 
key in underpinning messaging and how you interact with with people. And uh, I mean, you've seen this with you know a lot of studies on how you can almost make people purchase things by the way you position it, right? Um, mm-hmm. And 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 that's that's really interesting. So, so I find it fascinating. Yeah. So changing exactly supermarket shelves where you position the products and um, children in a canteen where you position the healthy foods. So if you have the healthier foods earlier on, so they've filled up their plates with the healthier foods before they get to the French fries, it it, it works and it's a beautiful way actually to to achieve change. It's quite a an easy, relatively easy way to drive um, behavior change. Um, and uh, what, uh, so you touch on a very important point that we don't, um, so with prevention, we don't see the impact of that in terms of disease. So we don't know that the state of our arteries and if they're getting clogged up, if we have high cholesterol, we only know once um, we get the, the disease endpoint or the heart attack, or the stroke. And actually, um, if we can find intermediate markets that help people to give people that feedback. Feedback's very important to get people to continue with their um, with their healthy behaviors. And so, if we can give people feedback, that's going to be tremendously impactful. And now we have measures of biological age as a as a good way to motivate people. Now, there's still um, uh, it, the science is still evolving on the validity of some of the, the ways of measuring biological age but and, and what they actually mean. But as a motivational uh, driver of behavior, I think they're fantastic. So if you um, um, measure your biological age and it's higher than your chronological age and you improve your diet and you see suddenly your biological age come down to your chronological age or, or lower than that, that's going to help you feel good about your change, make you feel like you're in control of your diet and help you to continue with a healthier diet. You mentioned um, skin, um, and I know you um, personally do some work on um, skin health and skin aging. And actually, I think that's a very, um, it's an area we really haven't focused on enough in terms of more holistic health, because it, it is the one area where we do see um, the the impact and the signs of our overall health well before we start uh, getting diseases. And so um, it is, I, I would like to see more emphasis on how um, our skin health can be a marker of overall health. And, and again, looking at health holistically, how can we uh, really just move away from this binary of, oh, this is aesthetic and this is health and really look at the two together. For example, we know that um, a skin barrier can have an impact on inflammation and um, uh, disease elsewhere in the body. Similarly for um, dental hygiene, dental health, and um, that can have an impact on um, cardiovascular health and other chronic disease so I think we 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 do need to put everything into the same pot, especially as most of the risk factors are the same, and most of the interventions that we want to put in would uh, have an impact on all of these together. No, I absolutely agree with that. This has been a very fascinating conversation, as always. It's been lovely talking to Professor Kotha. 
and would love to get you back on. We can dive into some of these niche subjects a bit more as well. This is kind of a general overview overview as, as I've launched this podcast, interviewing, you know, some of the people who are close to me, some of the people who advise me, some of the people I work with as well. And it's and Professor Kothra is a brilliant mentor to me as well. So I can always just message and and see if I'm on the right, right track as well. So this was really fun. So finally, Professor Kothra, as we round up, how can people follow you? How can people reach out to you? And what are you most excited about in health right now? Um, thanks, Soheb, for the kind words. And it's such a pleasure working with you because um, uh, your, I think your uh, broad vision and futuristic vision really um, helps me in my work considerably as well. So thank you. Um, uh, I can be reached on uh, Twitter, uh, uh, same handle, Kotha Hajat on LinkedIn, on Instagram, uh, all of them via my name, and um, Clubhouse um, as well, uh, Human Behaviour Club. So, um, and what am I excited about? Um, I do think some of these new technologies will really uh, um, accelerate and act as a catalyst for uh, changes in um, health. So I think there's a lot of potential for um, digital twins, for example, in encouraging um, uh, lifestyle behavior change. Again, with that feedback model, how do we get feedback? I think we can use the digital twins for feedback. VR, AR, similarly, they've already been used for some areas of mental health. And really, um, I think looking at, so technology is one area, really combining some of the um um, areas of health that have uh, until now been seen as quite separate, um, such as, I mean, microbiome is one example how um, it actually, we know now that it impacts almost all other areas of our health. And something as simple as improving our microbiota can have an impact on our mood and uh, chronic conditions, as well as our, our gut health. And so really com- uh, joining the dots of some of these other areas of gut health, skin health, our personality traits, um, psychological health and, and emotional well-being and, and piecing everything together for a more holistic uh, way of looking at health. And I think for the first time, I can say we really are moving into precision prevention. So, yeah, hopefully uh, um, that area will take off. Yeah, super excited about working with you in the future as well. I absolutely agree with what you said here. I think the future is really bright now that medicine is opening up and we're looking at things in, you know, you say real world science, we're looking at things in different ways and looking at motivations. And there's a lot of different pieces of technology, AI, VR, AR, as you mentioned, developing as well. So I think it's a great time to be in healthcare. Um, And yeah, thanks so much, Professor Kotha, for coming on. Hope to catch you soon and catch you on a future episode. Hope to get you back and see what you've been up to in the meantime. But guys, this will be available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So do give us a rating, do subscribe, and look forward to the next podcast. Thanks, everyone. Bye.